You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series podcast, episode 20. This is a special three-part episode with a person who I could only describe as the Forrest Gump of medicine. She has been through everything from H1N1, COVID as an ICU physician, a new diagnosis of chronic illness, and a new diagnosis of stage four cancer. Dr. Maura Lip is here to talk to us about how to succeed in life. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. Today, I have a very special guest. This is one of my very dear friends, Dr. Mara Lepp. She is an ICU doctor, and she uh, has recently experienced quite a shift in life, and we're going to hear to talk a little bit about that. Dr. Lipp, welcome to the bus. Hi. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Now tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, if someone were to ask, you know, tell us a little about you, what would you answer? Yeah, I'm an intensivist, so pulmonary critical care, and I do, you know, full-time ICU work. Been doing that for, well, 14 years at, at this, my current job. I'm married, you know, met my husband in Mexico. Wasn't quite spring break, but close enough. You know, and we've been married almost 15 years. You know, we, we love traveling, going to the beach and you know, spending time in the water, we shark dive, we do crazy things like that. But, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, you've experienced as an ICU intensivist, you know, so many interesting things. I know we've talked about your experience with the H1N1 um, epidemic, which, you know, at the time, you know, seems like minuscule in comparison, but I know that that was pretty remarkable. Then of course we had COVID, Um, you know, what was your experience with, with each of those two? Like, how are they similar and how are they different? Well, H1N1, I mean, up until COVID really was, you know, the, the hardest thing that I had seen or done in my career. Um, unfortunately, that's been topped. Uh, but it, uh, we, you know, had lots of, I mean, really young people, people in their 20s and 30s, um, you know, many that didn't survive. Most notably, I think of a 26-year-old, you know, six-month pregnant female, otherwise perfectly healthy. And, um, of course, lost both her and her baby. And uh, so it was a lot of tragedy. I think, you know, it was very different from COVID in the sense of, you know, 2009 is when H1N1, you know, that first wave sort of hit. And, you know, social media wasn't a big thing then. And so we didn't experience a lot of the sort of crazy misinformation. Um, You know, all of these, uh, everybody has requests about whatever treatment that they heard worked from some guy on Facebook. I mean, none of that existed. And so, you know, we, as hard as it was compared to COVID, you know, we didn't have that whole other element. We didn't have that element of distrust, you know, of, 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 you know, fueled by that misinformation. And I think, you know, it's funny, I've I've spoken to people not in the medical profession and I'm like, well, I didn't even know H1N1 was happening or I didn't even think it was that bad. And, uh, and again, then I think because the, the news didn't travel as much as it is with COVID, but it was, it was horrible. I mean, we, you know, worked constantly. I think never left um, and, and watching young people, you know, die. Um, in the beginning with that, you know, we also didn't have a vaccine for it. And <clears throat> then the vaccine came. And of course, the focus was on the highest risk population. So it was, you know, 
college age kids, you know, pregnant women um, and the elderly, and, and then anyone sort of in between, if you were a healthy middle-aged, you know, adult, you really didn't get vaccinated or you weren't, you weren't the push wasn't to get vaccinated. Um, and so not surprisingly, when we had the second wave of, COVID, of, of H1N1, um, we had then all middle-aged healthy adults dying unvaccinated. So 100% of the people that were, you know, ending up in the ICU and, and not surviving were, were absolutely the unvaccinated. So 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, you know, that were otherwise healthy and didn't have a reason to, to think that they needed it. You know, we learned a lot from that. Uh, you know, ECMO was not really a thing, but during that, everybody was desperate. You know, we, we had these 20-year-olds that were just dying and we, we just were looking and looking and looking for something to do. And I remember, um, you know, calling a referral center, you know, and, and talking to them about trying to do something. And they're like, we've gotten calls from everybody in the Southeast US with exactly the same problem. And I'm sorry to say, but there's, there's no ECMO available with whatever they had at that point that was ECMO that's different than the way it is now, um, because you had to be able to survive three days, you couldn't stay on it. And then it's like, I'm sorry to say, but the answer is no. And then the realization that my experience was much like all of the intensivists that were working during that period of time. And so, you know, that is really what pushed, I think, the practice to change. And sort of that's where ECMO came out of, was that, was that you know, just um, desperation that we all felt during that time because we were watching these young people in front of us and everything that we did, you know, didn't seem to affect it. You know, I remember describing it, it's like a freight train. You're just throwing everything at it and it's getting worse and nothing is working. So there were a lot of lessons, I think, you know, from that. And the most notable one is, you know, development of, of adult ECMO. Um, <clears throat> but fast forward to, to COVID and, you know, a lot of similar themes, you know, particularly with vaccination status, once we've only had, you know, vaccines, what we were seeing in the ICU and subsequent waves was, you know, 95% of people there, if you're in intensive care, you're unvaccinated. Um, but, you know, I lost a 21-year-old from COVID. I've lost many, you know, people in their 30s, perfectly healthy folks, um, but the same type of thing. It's like you just kind of throw everything at it and nothing really works. Um, I think COVID was less predictable than H1N1. H1N1 had this path. So if once you had it and they developed this, you knew exactly what day two, what day three, what day four would bring. COVID was all over the place, you know, it, it didn't really matter and it varied, you know, from one person to the next. And ultimately the final common pathway is the same, but it was very, very variable, much more compared to H1N1. Uh, and obviously the, the numbers, you know, were, were much greater. You know, we, I remember during H1N1 having the, the discussions about, do we need the refrigerated, you know, more trucks? Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get ventilators? And, and thankfully, None of that sort of stuff came to fruition for us, but it did with it, with COVID. Um, you know, with having, I think at the peak, we had 50, 52 people on ventilators and we had an ICU built for 26. Uh, yeah, so, you know, definitely the scale was much larger too. But, uh, and I think the impact of, you know, <clears throat> social media or even the regular media giving false information and all of this, all of this misinformation and sort of the, the almost downright hatred and anger that we would feel from um, say families because they were, they were reading some of these things and they couldn't understand why 
certain treatments were or weren't given. I mean, we, we were getting, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating, death threats if we didn't use, you know, say ivermectin on someone, it's, well, it's really not going to help this individual. But, you know, that whole extra outside element, um, <clears throat> I think, made a drastic difference. And it, I think, probably is one of the bigger contributors, if we look back, to burnout, you know, um, because it was so much stressful on us, on top of what we were already doing, just having that. Um, you know, having those issues arise. And we did not have that in H1N1. Um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it sounds like, you know, H1N1 was worried about stressing the resources, but didn't actually happen. Now, and COVID actually did stress the resources. And then, you right. you know, having on top of that, just the the media coverage, the misinformation. And, you know, I experienced, you know, a lot of that hostility too. And I was not, you know, one of the frontline people that had to deal with a lot of this. Um, and so I can only imagine, you know, how that, affected everyone in the ICU. And so mm-hmm. what was it like for all the folks in the ICU, you know, dealing with that, you know, as far as like, um, how did you guys come together? Or do you feel like that there was more isolation? Or uh, how did you guys work um, within that system? I think, you know, I think the blessing and the way that we really worked within all of that was each other, you know, we, we had a tremendous team, and we're, you know, we consider each other family, I think that's probably the same for you know, other hospitals and, and institutions. I mean, and so, you know, when something is happening, you band together with the people who are experiencing the same thing you are, you know, the like-minded folks. And that's how um, you rely on each other, you know, to either to, to vent, you know, to de-stress or, you know, that's uh, that's really how we got through. Um, you know, I, I thank God for them because I don't know that any of us would have made it through if we didn't have such a, such a strong, you know, uh, team. Um, I mean, because even even some families, I did not experience this myself, but, you know, I would, you'd hear, you know, nurses come in and say, my family thinks it's a hoax. I'm like, but you're an ICU nurse. And so it's one thing for them to not believe what they hear on TV or see on social media. But when you come home at the end of the day and tell a story, why would you be lying? You know, why would they think that you have any motivation to, to lie for them? Or they think you're part of this vast conspiracy. And it's something that you never would have thought would have happened before, but happened with incredible frequency. Um, and that even in our own homes, you know, people were, were getting you know, the, some of that hostility. Um, and really all you had to turn to was, was each other. Um, so I think that ultimately was was what made the biggest difference. I, I'm, I, we're fortunate too. I think our institution did a lot um, to try to find ways, you know, for us. So, for example, you know, they they made um, the counseling, you know, they, like gave resources for online counseling or or things like that, you know, available to you. And um, even our chaplains put together, you know, a tea for the soul, and they sort of did this debriefing sessions, these small debriefing sessions with more frequency. We didn't do that before. Um, so whatever could be put in place, I think was put in place. Um, my, my friends who worked, you know, in other places that that wasn't a universal thing, I think, from one institution to the next. Uh, so I, I think we were very fortunate in that, you know, we had those things provided to us. Um, I don't know how many people even call the online therapist, but, you know, I mean, just of, just giving us the resource, you know, just knowing it was there and that people were trying, I think, is what mattered the most. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think that our, our hospitals did a really phenomenal job of, of being receptive to feedback and forward thinking and trying to consider um, everything all together and really, really trying all that we could. I mean, I think that that really spoke right. highly. And I think that I agree, you know, that helped me as well is knowing that they were really trying and, and helping and they were very communicative and things like that. So I think that helped a lot because I also experienced the same thing that you see, like the people that should be a little bit more aware of the medical aspects of it too, you know, very receptive to the disinformation and, you know, the hostility. And it was a very, very strange environment of which, you know, unlike, you know, I, I, I compared it, I wasn't, you know, uh, practicing that part in H1N1, um, or at least not aware of it as much. Um, I was more relevant to the, the 9-11 to where everyone came together. We, oh, know, we had a threat, mm-hmm. came together. Um, mm-hmm. But this was like, we had a threat and we kind of separated. And I think that that really mm-hmm. um, impacted, just like you said, the burnout and the efforts. Right, right. Because it, it's hard enough, you know, you work your you know, 12 hour shift, you're seeing what we see, you know, I, uh, one of, I mean, there's so many difficult aspects of this, but, you know, to describe, you know, what it was like going through the day, um, I likened it to the 9-11 phone calls. You remember, you know, after, and then they released the phone calls, people on the planes were calling home and, you know, leaving messages for their loved ones and, and how, and how gut-wrenching it was to hear that. Well, you know, people with COVID, because they were wide awake before we put them on the ventilator and we all would sit there one person after the next and listen to them, call their loved ones and say goodbye. And we did this, I mean, over and over and over again, you know, right before you were about to intubate someone, you knew darn well in your heart, this person was probably not going to survive. And you had to sit there and bear witness to that. And, you know, that that was, to me, one of the most, you know, difficult parts of that, because you try to imagine if that was you, you know, in the bed, and you just know that you, you're, you're likely going to die. And, you know, the fear that you would feel, and then sort of what would you say to your loved ones, and who would you call? Um, but you know, we would do that all day and then you go home at night and you either face some of that, the questions of the hostility from your own family, or, you know, you turn on the television or grab your phone and, and open social media and it's nothing, but, um, you know, mean spirited sort of attacks, you know, and, and a lot on healthcare professionals and, uh, and, you know, fueled by that misinformation and all that distrust that came out of it. And it was, it was quite literally like a punch in the face. You know, you've done this all day long. You're, you're tired, you're wearing that stuff. It's hard, you know, you're, you're, working your, um, <clears throat> you're working your butt off and you're watching this tragedy happen one patient after the next, and then you're faced with that when you leave. And so that, that added element, I think, you know, it, it made a massive difference, you know, for how we all felt and, and how we feel today. And why a lot of people, unfortunately, did leave, you know, the, the healthcare profession or, or will soon leave because it was just too much to, to bear. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I experienced that on, you know, such a smaller scale because, you know, of course, you guys would call it um, for the trachs and I talked to the right. family members. And, yeah. and I remember distinctly, like, this was a sentiment that was over and over again, like, well, how could this happen to this person? You know, they, they were healthy. And I'm like, that was our point. We've been trying to tell you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and people, when they, when they couldn't come in and see, I think, you know, that also added to a little bit of the either, either a distrust or, you know, just misunderstanding about how, how ill someone is or when they would pass, how on earth that happened because they, they weren't there like they normally would have been every day seeing what we're doing, knowing that we're actually 
working really hard to save this person's life. They're doing this from afar. Um, and, and so I think that the not having, not being able to visit just compounded that problem, you know, uh, drastically because they talk to you on the phone and that's it. They can't see what's actually happening. Absolutely agree that that was like probably the most stressful aspect is, is not being able to help those folks that wanted to see their loved ones in person. And I think that, you know, our palliative care folks did a great job of the, um, the iPads and, you know, the, the FaceTime aspect. And I think that really like the aspect of technology helped tremendously in, in, you know, helping out in that particular situation. Yeah, no, most certainly did. And that was, again, a tool we didn't have back in 2009, you know, um, even then, you know, to be able to do that. And of course we, we didn't have visitation restrictions per se then, but you know, I think that we, we were fortunate in having those, that technology that exists now, you know, that allowed for some of that. Um, so I, I remember um, hearing about, you know, Eisenhower talking about the Holocaust and saying that, you know, make sure to take pictures because people aren't going to remember. And wow. it, it struck me in the time when I was looking down the hallway at our step down unit, which, you know, of course, doesn't have that. And all of the, the drips are outside, of course, because they don't want them inside for going in and out and, mm-hmm. and talking to, I which I could only describe it as shell shocked looks on some of the nurses' faces who were not used to doing ICU care, who not only had to do ICU care, but were doing it for like four people right. at a time and um, and things like that. And, and I took pictures of that, the drips in the hallway, just because oh, it's such a yeah. surreal, um, just, right. and it's hard to describe the feeling that was there too, but just the surreal aspect of it all was just something that's hard to describe. Even the picture, when right. I look back at it, doesn't do it justice. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. We, you know, we had the same change in the ICU and you, you visually, you look down the hall and you see drips outside of a room and you know that that's COVID and it's everybody, you know, the, the, it's every single room is isolation with, you know, drips outside, you know, exactly what was going on. Right. You know, yeah. And, and you know, a lot of times people were being pulled from one place to another. Um, and the one, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the most positive aspect. I'm interested in your thoughts too, but the OR um, folks on the floor, I'd walk out of like, what are y'all doing here? And they said, <laughs> we're, we're just, we're here to help. And we're here to show solidarity. I'm, I'm not sure we're doing much because they, you know, because they've already kind of got all this, but we're just here to kind of show solidarity for, um, for our fellow coworkers. And I thought that's right. one thing I'm going to take home is, is how it did bring a lot of us together. Right. So that's very true. You know, we would, we would have say people from the cath lab just cutting through the unit saying, what can we help you with? What can we help you with? And there may not have been anything for them to do or times they would literally jump in and help us prone somebody. Um, But seeing, seeing the team come together, like I said, just having them there and knowing that people are willing to help and drop everything and come out of their comfort zone and work in a different part of the hospital just to, to help get the job done. I mean, that, that was, Absolutely heartwarming, you know, to say, I think, I think just having that presence there was, was special. And God bless those, the, the poor folks on step down, because, you know, they really got thrust into, you know, to that. I mean, they, they were doing really ICU level care um, and overnight, you know, I think that they had to kind of pick up and, and truly, they were really truly out of their comfort zone, you know, but, but they did it, you know, they got it done. And a lot of them would come and get cross-trained in the ICU. That was the other thing too, is that kind of ahead of, we knew that wave, we brought a lot of them in to at least do some cross-training prior to the, to the big, big wave that we had. Um, so I think there was an attempt to try to help them, you know, with as much as that we could help them with before, but my goodness, they, they really had to, they had to step up. That must've been awful. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, I, I know you experienced COVID yourself, you know, take us through mm-hmm. like your experience of, of personally right. having COVID. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I had it and it was in December of 2020 and it was just before the vaccine came out. So, you know, I remember this, I had, I had signed up and I had gotten my text, you know, that says you're, you're on the list, you know, that 1A or whatever the first group was, because, you know, you'd be a frontline worker to get it and they'll be in next week. So I had my text, I was ready to go. Well, in that week waiting for the vaccine to show up is when I got COVID. And so after, you know, it, it, was, it was nine months I'd been swimming in it, you know, and then that's when I actually got it. And, uh, and of course, it, it, was, it was frightening because you have seen, you know, I, I think it's, it's a downside of knowing things sometimes when you're a medical professional is you always think of the worst thing that could possibly happen. And it's almost better sometimes to be ignorant, you know, and, and not know that. Um, but I... Uh, I was sick for a month. I was out for a month. I had COVID pneumonia as well. Um, but I was also very fortunate in that uh, literally 24 hours after I, my test came back positive, I was able to get the monoclonal antibody, which was also fresh off the presses. You know, I think it, we, we'd had it available maybe for a week or two at that point. Um, and, and I'm quite certain and no way to prove this, but with how sick I was and what the trajectory is sort of how that, that played out, that if I had not gotten that monoclonal antibody, then I probably would have been much sicker and, and maybe hospitalized or gosh, hopefully not worse. Um, because I have, there's multiple sclerosis and I'm on a, a, a monoclonal antibody to treat that. And at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of data out yet about if that increased your risk for COVID or not. Um, and as it turns out, the one I was on, there really isn't that much of an increased risk, but at that time we didn't know it, you know, so I'm like, oh gosh, if I'm, you know, immunosuppressed in some way, and now I have COVID and, you know, what's going to happen. Um, and then my husband, you know, ultimately did get it too. He got it about two weeks after I did. And we tried very, very hard, you know, to sort of quarantine ourselves in the house. Um, and he did, thankfully did not get very sick at all, but I'll tell you, I felt absolutely horrible about that because I knew he got it from me and I knew I got it from work. I didn't go any place else but work. That's it. You know? And so, you know, the fact that my spouse got it, I mean, really, you know, I, you, you expect that it's going to feel bad, but I will tell you, I felt terrible about that. You know? So, but fortunately he, he was fine. He was like exercising at home. You know, I could barely walk across the room and he's like, well, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm glad because Man COVID has got to be worse than man flu. So I'm very, very fortunate that he didn't have it really bad because I don't think I could have handled it at that point in time. Um, but no, that was, that was tough though. I tell you, I felt bad giving it to him. But uh, after you know a month, um, I was able to go back to work. But even when I went back to work, I, I was going back to work part-time because I had that sort of lingering fatigue. I would work you know two days and then be like, Bed, bed bound basically for days trying to recover from just two shifts. So it took several months after that for me to fully recover. And I had orthostatic, I had autonomic dysfunction as well after that. So it took several months. That all eventually went away, but it was, it was impactful. It's like, okay, I didn't get hospitalized, but you know, this, this really will it, it'll make you sick for a while. You know, it certainly will. At what point did you feel like you kind of got over it? How long did that take? Um, to be fully over, it was probably, you know, four or five months, I would say, you know, 
It's so fascinating because, you know, just hearing your story, I mean, we're already starting to see a lot of these memories fade, you know, mm-hmm. the uncertainty and the guilt and the, you know, just some of the utter madness of the time. Um, right. And it's just, it's so funny how it just, our minds allow us to forget some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. You put it behind you. I, it, you know, it was, and it was hard being home for, you know, that length of time, but, you know, I said, eventually it'll get better, but I don't know how many other things I could binge watch or, you know, it was over Christmas and, you love Christmas movies, but after a while, you just, so many times you could watch them, you know, it was, it was being at home. So, you know, I fortunately, you know, did get to go back to work, but it took about a month. Dr. Lip's story continues with part two of this episode. In the meantime, check out bosssurgery.com to see what's going on with the Boss Business of Surgery series.